Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and around the globe, energy, economics, and of course, the environment. I am your host, CEO and President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. On today's episode, which was recorded on 9 July 2021, we discuss the uncertainties around the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear deal and the related sanctions on Iran's oil industry, its position in OPEC Plus, and how this could influence global energy security. We're really pleased today to have us join us from Washington, D.C., Dr. Sarah Vakshuri. Dr. Vakshuri is founder and president of SVB Energy International, a strategic energy consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C. and in Dubai in the UAE. She has two decades of experience working in global energy market studies, energy strategy, energy security, and geopolitical risks, all of the things that we feel are so important to the mindset and uh, going forward narrative about energy policy. She's a member of the Energy Task Force of the Cyprus Climate Initiative, which was launched and initiated by the President of the Republic of Cyprus. She is also a Professor of Energy Security at the Institute of World Politics. I don't think I have to say any more that Sarah's well-versed talk about Iran today. Sarah, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Sarah, why don't you start with talking about your consulting firm, SVB Energy International, where you are, what you do, and and, uh, where you think your enterprise is going in the near future. Well, it's a it's a good question, especially the second part where we think you're going uh, um, in the future. Um, to begin with, we are a consulting firm. Uh, we are energy strategists, so we are looking into different market dynamics. Uh, we study the market closely. We are in close connection with our networks directly or indirectly with the major players in the energy market, and we try to understand what is happening today, how it's going to impact tomorrow. So our basically job is to come up with scenarios to answer complex questions that could come up uh, about what is the situation today and what could happen uh, tomorrow. We also have clients that we are helping them with their energy strategy, particularly energy security strategy. Where we go in future, um, what we are going to do, it's, and we really didn't announce it yet, but we are doing a lot of focus on energy and water nexus. Uh, we are trying to focus more on water issues, the more we go and how uh, energy uh, transition is going to have impact uh, on uh, energy poverty, uh, energy access. So these are the key areas that we are going to focus more in the future. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very well said. And I think that the, we'd certainly like to um, at another time, perhaps, I think the nexus of water and, and uh, energy is, well, of course, it's giant with climate change and the fact that so much of the world is impoverished. And, you know, we need, all need energy, but guess what? After O2, you need water. And uh, that, that's a very good point. I'd like to visit that another time, but let's talk about Iran. Sure. And give some context to our listeners. As, as most people know, in 2018, uh, President Trump withdrew the United States from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear agreement and reimposed sanctions on Iran. The sanctions greatly affected the Iranian economy. Could you broadly explain the ramifications with most respect to the oil industry in Iran? Oh, of course. So uh, Iranian oil industry has been 
suffering from different types of sanctions. Not This is not something new. Uh, in fact, it might be interesting for the audience if they already know that, that Iran's first sanctions on Iran was set, uh, implemented more than 50 years ago when uh, Iran nationalized its oil. And at that time, uh, uh, British government put Iranian fuel oil sale on, under sanctions because they uh, invested, developed, and extracted Iranian oil and built a refinery, which was very much in direction with Churchill's idea of energy security to change the fuel of British Navy's fleet from domestic coals in Wales to uh, oil, fuel oil of Persia. Right. Prior to us understanding the world as Iran, yes. Persia was the, it was the diamond in the United Kingdom's energy sector. Right. 1911, uh, he was the uh, head of the Navy, changed the dynamic completely to oil rather than coal. And Persia was the key to that for the, for the next hundred years, correct? That's right, exactly. So when they decided that they are nationalizing their oil, that was the first time that Iran, uh, Iranian energy industry faced sanction. And it's interesting because uh, the, the country that kind of circumvented or broke the sanction was Japan. So Japan sent their first fleet to uh, buy Iranian fuel oil at that time. And that's when Iran realized that if they had their own tanker fleet, they could circumvent the sanctions. Since then, Iran invested so much on their tanker fleet, which up to now has been really their key uh, strategic asset to circumvent different U.S. sanctions. Um, then, so the, again, the other major, there is an Iranian, uh, Iran-Iraq war. We had Iran, Iranian revolution before that in 1979, uh, after uh, there was a hostage taking uh, uh, happening in Iran, U.S. hostages, um, the U.S. government uh, put an embargo on importing Iranian oil. Prior to Iranian revolution, a big chunk of Iranian oil was coming to United States. Uh, before that, we had Arab oil embargo, which uh, ironically, Iran and King of Iran, Shah of Iran at that time was the allies to U.S. and Iran continued its export to U.S. So U.S. Uh, oil, Iranian oil embargo uh, set around uh, 79 revolution, then it was war. And since uh, President Clinton, that at that time it was ILSA sanction, Iran-Libya sanctions, uh, sanction act and no more Libya today, Iran sanction act, put a heavy, a very strong sanctions on Iranian energy industry, which kind of uh, limited the investment amount that international investors could invest in Iranian energy industry, as well as uh, access to technology. Again, those sanctions um, were still in place on American investors, but secondary investors, non-American investors, Total, the French company, was the first company to go to Iran after the ISA sanction, Iran Sanction Act, and invest in Iran. Then moving forward, when the nuclear um, uh, issue in, in Iran became intensified and the conflict with the world and the Western countries, European and U.S., uh, during Obama administration, they put another set of comprehensive sanctions, which Iranian energy industry was targeted under Iran's nuclear sanctions. And again, different types of sanctions which on different sectors, they would ban the export of gasoline to Iran, which at some point was Iran's really Achilles heel. Uh, Iran's consumption of gasoline was very high, but Iranian domestic uh, refiners were incapable of uh, producing gasoline. So Iran practically was exporting crude oil raw material to China or India and was bringing back gasoline. After that sanction, Iran started to becoming more resistant toward that. They expand their domestic capacity to uh, produce gasoline. And now at this point that we are talking, 
Iran is self-sufficient in producing gasoline. They are also exporting gasoline. So they have additional export capacity for gasoline that they're supplying to neighboring countries. But the, the other major sanctions that really targeted Iran was a ban on Iran's crude oil export under uh, President Obama's uh, administration, which uh, hit Iranian export. Iranian export was almost uh, down to half or less but uh, during that time, uh, there were waivers uh, issued for major Iranian importer, uh, oil importers like China, India, Japan, South Korea, uh, and some of the European countries. The reason for that was at that point of time, Iranian oil was crucial for the market and prices of oil were higher. This changed drastically under President Trump administration because when President Trump took office, we had huge amount of US shale oil produced, but also the export ban on U.S. shale oil was removed. So U.S. shale was exported or is exported uh, until now even. So we had plenty of shale supplies in the market. Oil prices were lower. So President Trump could take uh, harder measures against Iran. They, they're targeted the maximum, what they call it, maximum pressure, zero export of Iranian oil. They stopped issuing waivers for Iranian oil importers. So they tried to push Iranian oil export to zero as well as they targeted Iranian condensate export, which I can explain later why this was really crucial uh, for Iran to be able to export condensate. So really hit Iranian capacity for export and going back to energy industry, obviously no investment going to Iranian energy industry uh, from foreign reserves. So it was pretty uh, harmful for Iranian energy industry, also for their foreign reserves assets uh, and economy. For listening to you, you uh, that that's a great overview of the last, you know, of, of how you know sanctions have been around Iran ever since the end of the Shah, and prior to that, in a different forum of geopolitics under you know the two world wars, etc. But um, so the Iranian economy had to be decimated through this whole period, and their societally, that people must have must be, and they must still struggle. Is that not true? Like in the right in in Iran, like you said, they they've. They've obviously built refining capacity, but they were still unable to export any crude oil. Was it completely shut to zero so during no, the Trump it was, era? It did not actually completely shut to zero. Iran's formal export or other countries' formal import from Iran hit to zero, but obviously they were selling still plenty of oil, what they call it, in a gray market. Uh, and as I said, what helped them was that tanker fleet, tanker capacity that they started building it from more than 50 years ago. And what they were doing is that were that filling their own tankers, going somewhere on the sea, and then transfer their oil, selling it ship to ship to another middleman. Okay. Another middleman. Uh, so on average, under President Trump, their export was something between five to seven hundred thousand barrels. They there were some months, especially during the COVID, particularly Chinese uh, purchase of oil decreased significantly. No one in the oil world was really. Um, purchasing more oil uh, and Iran had problem exporting its oil and its export reduced significantly to about two to 300,000 barrels per day from 2.5 million barrels per day prior to sanctions. But on average, they exported about five to 700,000 barrels. And when President Biden uh, was elected, the moment his name came out of the ballot, uh, in the U.S., Iranian exports start increasing from about three to five hundred thousand barrels on the last months of President Trump's administration to about seven and eight hundred thousand barrels in average. We had few couple of months that it reduced, so they are fluctuating. Sure, but sure. the export is not to complete zero. 
So where would Iran, you know, let's think about this holistically. World oil supply and demand construct has changed dramatically. And I'm in the camp that says demand is going to increase for another half a decade minimal. Where would Iran like to be in the in world oil trade in the, say, 2022 to 2024, as far as their percentage of exports? In your mind, could, is that a question you could answer? Of course. So on a tech, technical side, Iran uh, has about 4 million barrels of uh, oil uh, production capacity, and they were exporting about 2.5 million barrels per day. So if the sanctions are removed from the day that sanctions are removed, you're expecting that it takes them about three months to add about five to 700 million barrels per day of additional export to what they have today. Today, they have an export. Their export is about, as I said, about 700,000 barrels per day uh, in June. Uh, there had some like months like May that their export reduced to 500, but they kept their production at the level currently about 2.5 a million barrels per day. So they have about 700,000 barrels of capacity to export today. The moment the sanctions are removed, they can increase production to about five to 700,000 barrels per day, which that would be all export capacity. And within six months, they can add about 1.1 million to 1.2 million barrels per day to what they're producing, exporting now, which means totally about 2 million barrels per day within six months. So half of their production capacity. Yes, almost, almost like two-thirds of their production capacity. And where does that fit in the current uh, dust-up we've got going on in, in OPEC, plus with the UAE pushing back on increases over time? Where does Iran fit in that schematic? It's actually a very good question because even, you know, the, the global inventories back in February started to reach into the five years average. So we are seeing that inventories, global inventories, particularly in the U.S., are decreasing. Right. This was an issue back big draw on ga- Big draws on gasoline the last couple of days, like in, mm-hmm. even in the U.S. as the economy yes. starts to roll again. Yes, and even on a crude oil side, both OECD and U.S. crude inventories. So uh, if we look at the market, the way the vaccination worked and all those um, uh, checks that government paid to help people, uh, these will all add to the demand and it's uh, adding to the demand. So demand is growing in a very healthy manner, and we are expecting that in the next uh, second half of 2021, and particularly in the first half of 2022, we have a huge demand increase. Even before there is a fight in OPEC and they call off the meeting, if OPEC was adding production as it was planning uh, prior uh, to month to month because they have a production increase plan that was set for the whole uh, 2021 up to the first quarter of 2022, the market would still have a deficit of 1 million to 1.4 million barrels per day of additional uh, supply. So even if before the OPEC incident this month, even if OPEC would, OPEC plus, uh, OPEC plus countries would still expand their production according to what they were planning, the, uh, the world would still, could you still use Iranian oil and absorb Iranian additional export because the market market would be in deficit. And the U.S. shale, despite the fact that prices are high, it's going to take time for them to react and production to increase to the level that the market would require. We would expect at least 12 months for U.S. shale uh, production with all those hesitations of investors, all those uh, White House policies on shale and fracking to show reaction and increase. So market could easily absorb Iranian oil. And now we think that if Biden administration 
stocks uh, between having Iranian oil barrels back and having high gasoline prices at the pumps because OPEC is not OPEC plus is not reaching to agreement, they might it might be actually a factor to push the negotiation to a more positive and quicker result sooner. Let's dive into Iran a little deeper. Um, yes. The Iranian presidential election on June 19th resulted in the election of, of hardliner Ibrahim Rasi. Is that how I say that? Racy? Yes, Racy. He, he was sanctioned in the United States for connections to a mass execution of political prisoners in 88 and has indicated that he'd been much more inflexible in negotiations than the current Iranian president. Does he have leverage? Is there? I, I'm sorry, but Iran, Iran needs foreign investment to continue to keep their production. They don't have the capital. It, it's a different parallel, but it's un, not unlike what you just mentioned about shale in the United States. Investors in New York, Boston, and, and uh, London aren't real happy with how shale producers have managed their money over the past decade. And I agree with you completely. Ramping up U.S. shale is not going to be easy because the capital is really, really selective today. How does Iran find capital under a leader like Racy? <laughs> That's, uh, I would say, um, so Racy is going to make Iran's life harder than it could be before, even though that um, what we hear from Vienna, from both sides, Iran and the other side of the table, the negotiations is still is flowing to a positive matter. The disagreements are getting lower, narrower and narrower. But having someone like Raisi make everything very fragile, Iran's position fragile, even the JC, the deal that is the negotiations fragile because of his history, because of his approach, they are ultra conservative uh, side in Iran. But with regard to investment, uh, even before Raisi was elected, when we were talking to major energy companies about their incentives or in their intentions or likelihood of their investment in Iran, their answer was very interesting. So most of the companies are excited about, and they're hoping that US would reach to some sort of deal, non-American companies, of course, and go to Iran and invest. But what they are looking is a very short investment, mostly is selling trade, uh, selling services or goods and in expanding their trade with Iran. No, invest, no investor is looking, even before Raisi being elected, no investor was looking at long-term investment in Iran because of the risks involved with investment in Iran. So we talked to major energy companies, even Total, ENI. They, they said that, well, they're interested in looking at Iran, but they will not commit to long-term investment, even if all the sanctions are unwinded on Iran, because this massive swing of policy in US from President Obama to President Trump back to President Biden, there is no guarantee that the next president in US is not going to have a different approach toward Iran. So what they said is that they're going to at least wait for four years and see who is the next U.S. president, and if U.S. policies toward Iran and all this sanction removal, if it happens, is going to remain consistent in Washington, D.C., then they will decide to go and invest in Iran. Now, having someone like Raisi, president, that even president's name is in the U.S. sanctions list, makes things much harder for Iran to have access to a long-term uh, foreign investment. That's very interesting. What about other state-owned, uh, like what about PetroChina or uh, Indian money? Like they, they, they're short oil. In the short term, things look interesting, but in the longer term, and you know these these domains think much longer strategically. 
Eni, uh, Total, etc. But there's other places for capital. I, I, I think that Iran is Iran and China have always I'm not going to say aligned, but they've done business for a long time. Exactly. And um, I'm sure you have heard about the 25 year deal that Iran has signed with uh, China. It's uh, uh, and it has been signed and designed uh, and drafted by conservative part of uh, the power side in Iran, uh, which now Raisi, their representative, is president. The 25 year deal is basically giving from ownership to management of most of the resources and industries in Iran to China. And is basically China is going to extract from mining to oil industry to different resources in Iran. Will manage them. Will manage the ports. Health from health industry to IT technology to energy industry. It's a very comprehensive deal for 25 years. China will practically take Iranian oil, will export services or investment in return uh, in Iran. And what we think is that now that we have Raisi, even if the sanctions are removed. That that 25-year initial agreement between Iran and China will become more, more physical, and Iran will move more toward uh, having partnership with China in different aspects. And China will be the most dominant investor in Iran in terms of both trade to take Iranian oil and resources and also invest in Iran. Something that actually you asked me your first question about where we move in future. If I want to look into long-term future, this actually is a scary because not for Iran side. Okay, Iran is a country that its situation is going to get worse. Having a hardliner president or dealing with China, we might look at only in the context of Iran. But if you want to look at the global context, we are at the brink of a transition that we are looking into energy transition, which means that we need more rare earth material, more metal, more mining material uh, that is all required for all the materials in renewable energy facilities, infrastructure, and the energy transition. Most of these rare earth materials and metals that we need are located in China in terms of resource-wise. Now, China is moving into managing and owning or uh, signing long-term mining extraction contracts with countries like Iran. Iran has a lot of uh, huge sources of copper, and China will be indicted to these and owning these resources or managing these resources for a very long time. I don't think people understand, uh, well, and I'm not posing a, you know, that this is the common thread, but Iran is a fairly resource-rich country. There, there's, it isn't just oil. It's, and I think you've touched on that. And, and um, in the, in the future of the energy transition, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, it, this, these longer term 25, 50 year plans that China has been working on since 1949 um, is fully in scope with what Iran could do. And geopolitics is going to d- dictate, they have to do what they have to do. I'd like to talk before, as we end here, Sarah, and thank you that this has been really, really interesting. I think that our listeners will really get a, a better idea of, you know, it's a, it's a very developed country in certain respects. As people might know, that Iran was one of the founding members of OPEC and has always maintained its membership all the way through the Shah and the revolution and uh, sanctions and tension, um, whereby, as we know, the de facto leadership comes from Saudi Arabia. However, with Racy and the and the announcement of uh, Bijan Zanganai, is that yes? Uh, he's their representative. Is going to re- at OPEC. Is going to retire. What? What do you? How do you see Iran 
in the bigger OPEC picture going forward? Because they are a fairly large producer. They're a major player inside OPEC and have always been there politically and uh, economically. So where does OPEC go and uh, Iran's role in OPEC in the future? This is a very uh, good question. Before uh, I touch upon this question, I just want to add one uh, one short anecdote that uh, you mentioned about Iran uh, resources. Yes, and Iran is one of the countries in the region that because of the sanctions has a very diverse economy now because right. their uh, dependence on their oil export was something about 80% back uh, during Obama administration when the sanctions on oil exporters started. Now is very little, it's almost less than 20% their oil dependency when it comes in terms of their economy. So they have a diverse economy, lots of resources, and um, domestic situation and international situation really was unfortunate for where Iran could be and where it is today. But if I want to come back to OPEC, obviously Zangana was a long-term uh, energy veteran uh, in Iran. He had a very close relation with most of the OPEC delegates, especially the Saudi uh, oil minister, uh, His Royal Highness uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, which uh, had a very close relation with uh, uh, Bijan Zangene uh, together, which obviously is helpful, you know, when, when OPEC goes through those hard times. Yep. But, but I don't think that next Iranian oil minister or just because there has been an administration change is going to uh, create a significant change of policy, Iran's policy in the OPEC. What I'm confident is that whoever is the next uh, minister and OPEC uh, representative of Iran, they would do the same thing that Zangina did. They would fight for Iran quotas. They would not agree to cut back their production because they have been out of the market for a long time. And this is what Zangina and his team did uh, during different OPEC uh, ups and downs since um, uh, Obama's uh, administration sanctions on Iran. When in 2016, the sanctions were unwinded, Iran uh, argued that they have to uh, export uh, and produce to their full capacity capacity because they have lost the market share for a long time. And I'm sure this would be Iran's policy. So at some point, if OPEC tries to push Iran to cut back production, Iran would not agree and OPEC might come up with waivers like before they did for Iran because, because of the fact that their production has not been to their maximum capacity for a long time. And in the next months to come or next half of the year and even to the first half of 2022, Iran's production might start increasing gradually. So Iran would not bind itself to production cut, any production cut agreement most likely, because they're already producing way under their uh, capacity. You know, it's very interesting that this monopoly has existed since the early 1960s and it comes to these, these forks in the road, but it always, it, there's always some back off from each party knowing that in the hole, if they stay in the hole, they can affect the market. And, you know, you look at these, this, the last, and I'd like you to touch on your views on this. And I know this is unscripted, Sarah, so I appreciate your, your candor. Um, you know, in the last couple of months, the IEA has been all, the International Energy Agency has been all over the map. A month ago, they talked about, you know, we got to get this all done faster. We got to quit putting money, capital into new projects in the oil industry and gas. This is over. And then a week later, they're asking Russia and other uh, large producers to increase their rate because we got us in the short term, this is a problem. So could you just touch on that for like, I, I it, it's, sorry, I'm, I'm going to editorialize her a little bit because I get to do that as the host, but <laughs> the IEA is kind of acting like 
the United Nations here to me. Uh, they, <laughs> they do a lot of talking and a lot of arm waving. And uh, people don't re- maybe not remember, but they were all financed by the non-OPEC oil and gas companies <laughs> back in the 70s because of the 1973 embargo. And here they are dictating climate policy, etc. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to let you take, let's finish our interview with your views on the IEA relative to OPEC. Well, you know, IEA, uh, it's actually such an interesting paradox because IEA was initially established to uh, maintain the oil supply security for consumers, as you yeah, say. For Western, yes. Western democracies. For Western democracy, but their initial task was energy security for right. consumers, Western, Western countries, OECD consumers. And now the way they are pushing <laughs> the market or you're calling it dictating their suggestions is actually create vulnerability for energy security of these countries. Because if you look at the greenest scenarios, even in the greenest energy scenarios that we are moving to completely green um, fuels, we still need about 70 million barrels of oil per day to use in petrochemicals. We are going to still need plastics. Did everybody forget that all those wind turbines are using steel oil and petrochemical products in them? Or all those solar batteries is not all made of silicon or aluminum or a different material. Oil will still have a significant role into our uh, medicine, uh, cosmetics, toys. Yeah, people paint. forget health healthcare, for instance, right? Like, exactly. Uh, oh. So uh, we still need oil, and all these scenarios that IEA is promoting will increase the vulnerability of uh, consumers and reduce their energy security because if there's no investment, who will produce more? Well, most of the 70 million barrels per day will come again from OPEC plus countries because they have the lowest production cost. Right. But US shale or more higher cost produ- uh, producers, even though that they have a high production cost, but they're still producing a lighter uh, production, which they can consider as a cleaner crude oil or less carbon intensive, yep. yes, uh, crude and also the oil passes through a safer passages rather than passing all those critical choke points. So I think that that's where the policy is disconnected from realities underground. Even policies in DC, if we are moving energy transition, pushing it so fast, maybe people in the United States have enough money in their pocket to pay premium prices for energy. But if the energy cost is not affordable, doesn't that just increase the energy poverty? Because this is a dual challenge. The demand is growing. Companies have to produce more energy. They have to supply more energy for the market. But if they have to make this energy clean or they have to produce less emissions, how can they produce more? Then they have to increase. The cost will increase. Technologies now are not at the level that can produce clean, affordable energy at a huge mass uh, scales that the global demand requires that. So we might be in a threat of increasing the energy poverty, lowering the energy access because energy could not be affordable. So for me, the mantra would be affordability. Energy transition is important. We obviously, of course, all of us know that um, 
it's very important to uh, look for uh, more cleaner sources because of our environment, but affordability is the key. Also not to forget that all these solutions, what we think is a solution to substitute oil, it's also consuming a lot of materials from the earth that is costly to produce and very costly and hard to recycle. Do right. people, have people ever looked into uh, wind turbine blade, blade graveyards? You know, it's very hard to um, recycle some of these materials. And these are the next challenge for the earth. I totally, agree. I totally agree with you. The conceptual discussion has occurred, but the full circular economy of affordability is not nearly well enough known. I, you, you touched on the most important piece of energy security is affordability. And you, we started this conversation about water and, you know, the, the, those 4 billion people or two and a half billion, let's just call it, you know, it's a lot, big number of people who have no energy other than, than uh, uh, bio or dung to heat their home or cook their food. What about them? Do they not deserve the same kind of run up out of poverty for their lives as the rest of the West? And I think that that gets really lost in the narrative and, and, um, why don't you just talk a couple of minutes about what you're doing in the dynamic nexus of water and energy before we end here, uh, Sarah, while you've got the floor. <laughs> Thank you. So um, most of the areas that are uh, very poor uh, in terms of access to electricity, obviously they don't have clean or what we call it safe water. And there are lots of at least kids dying every day because of diarrhea and lack of access to uh, clean and safe water and sanitation. There are many women, of course, people uh, suffering from this. And there is also an issue of clean cooking. We are mostly focused on safe water because when it comes to clean cooking, even though you mentioned dung is not good for people's health, especially when they bring that dung indoor to create heat and cook for their uh, breathing and the, uh, the inhalation is obviously there are risks involved to that. But if I want to be very honest with you, um, look at India. 70% um, of people live in suburbs. Most of the people are in, sub, uh, in suburbs are cooking on dung, with dung or wood, uh, wood fire. And if you want to bring clean cooking for them, let's say LPG, uh, this means that you are increasing India's demand for natural gas significantly. And this means that India has to import huge amounts of natural gas. And this is a huge energy security vulnerability for a country like India. Why? Because people for centuries, they have been cooking on wood fire or dung. Now you're telling them cook on natural gas. So if tomorrow there is not enough natural gas in the market or the natural gas prices are high and India for some reason cannot have access to that uh, required natural gas for its people, then people cannot cook. And then there are massive riots. So right. it's a very, very hard solution, uh, decision to make uh, when it comes to clean cooking, especially on India, which is one of the major parts of the world that they don't have access to uh, clean cooking. And th th there's an interesting story into that too. You know, we went on the ground, we worked with uh, what uh, Indian government tries to do is that they're reaching out to gurus and gurus are promoting LPG and clean cooking to people. So we talk to people on the ground and we're telling them, okay, we give you like a Modi's government, they're going to give you a free um, LPG, like one or two capsules and uh, very cheap LPG to cook. 
And then they're, they're, the, the villagers answer is very interesting and nuanced, you know, because me and I mean me, I'll sit in my office in DC and look at my own lifestyle and think that I should export my lifestyle for people in villages in India. Their response to me is that we don't like to cook on gas. I'm like, why? They tell me because bread tastes better on a wood fire and that's how we cook it. And our wife doesn't have a job all day. She goes collect wood and cook. Do you bring me job into my village that I'm able to put pay for that additional LPG price. You know, so wherever we are looking into energy, like transitioning or changing people's lifestyle by energy, we should also think about economy of that. If I want to sell people LPG, I should also bring them additional income uh, source or like change the economy of village so they are able to pay for that. I can't just change their lifestyle easily and expect them to accept that. Um, that's why we are mostly focused on energy water nexus and safe water because that's critical for people's health and there are a lot of uh, off-grid solutions for that uh, producing power from let's say solar power generation and then having water desalination units that could function with like a, a limited solar plant uh, is providing to that this is just working on a smaller scale we're hoping that we are able to working on a larger scale obviously but uh, these are just um, a very fascinating new um, journey for us that we are still learning about Sarah I, I I really I admire you and your what you're doing and, and uh, I'm, a, I'm an altruist myself and uh, societally you know, you're right. Like, do, do I export my lifestyle? No. Let's find a common ground of where we can help pull people closer to uh, longer lives and more fulfilled lives with what we know, not what we think they should know. We have one last question for all of our guests. And I, Sarah, thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest and we'll be, we'll have you on again. What are you reading today? Oh, what I'm reading? Uh, well, on, on work side or on a personal side? No, personal. We're the, we all read too much about our work. <laughs> uh, well, this is a book that a dear friend of mine uh, bought and sent for me. I've been reading this for a long time, but this is like my daily meditation, really to listen uh, to like think about the sentences, mastery to accomplishment, and is uh, basically the teaching of Hazrat Inayat Khan. Um, uh, it's very interesting. It uh, reminds me uh, on a daily basis that um, look at my goal uh, with so much uh, enthusiasm and energy to prioritize, to know what really I want to reach, but at the end of the day to make sure I'm detached from the results. So I'm not so uh, worried about winning, <laughs> but just to make sure that just I want to accomplish something that I believe it's. Well, it's I'll, just, I'll just close with my own mantra that would sort of I'm certainly will align with this book and we'll put it up on our website sure. is do the work, give up the result. Exactly. That's the whole thing that I try to remind myself every day. Right. And you know, if, if we, if we can, and I'll just, again, editorialize, if we can build spirituality into that, whatever that may be for anyone, then yeah. we got her built. So thanks again, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaiai.ca support. Please help. 
We are a not-for-profit, unbiased think tank dependent on your donations. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joel Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing the music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.